welcome to Word Online. Hello and welcome to series 12 and episode 10. We're in the story of the Last Supper and in this episode Jesus washes the disciples' feet. We're going to follow the story as John tells it in John 13 verses 1 to 20. There's a wonderful interplay between the different gospel accounts as we discuss the Last Supper. So we'll be looking at material from different gospels as we go along. And John adds a huge amount of significant material and teaching. And he adds this incident of the washing of the disciples' feet. Now, the broader story, of course, is that this event, the Last Supper, is placed in the middle of a week of enormous significance, which all the gospel writers focus on and tell us more about than any other period of Jesus's life. It's what we call the Passion Week, the last week of Jesus's life. And it's been the subject of series 11 and series 12 up until this point, and will continue to be the subject right the way through until almost the very end of our teaching. Series 11 started with Jesus's entry into Jerusalem. And as I've mentioned in many previous episodes, this is tremendously important. He chose to come into Jerusalem at the time of Passover deliberately because the Passover was the time that he wanted his death to take place at, for reasons that we looked at in the last episode and we'll mention them again in future episodes. This was a great religious festival for the Jews and so Jerusalem was crowded with many thousands of visitors staying in the city or staying in nearby villages and towns. All the little streets were crowded, the temple was crowded and there were many family reunions and friends gathering together and much religious fervour as they prepared to celebrate the Passover. So Jesus arrived on the Sunday in the city, the first day of the Jewish week, amidst a great crowd, a great enthusiastic crowd welcomed him into the city. And then on Monday, he went to the temple and he very provocatively disrupted the market trading that was taking place, which had been organized by the high priests and the Sanhedrin. And this trading was very profitable, money changing, trading in animals and birds used for the sacrificial system. So pilgrims coming into the temple had to spend a lot of money in order to fulfill their religious duties. And Jesus saw this as corrupt and he accused these people of being robbers, taking away from the people and turning the house of prayer into a den of robbers. He cleansed the temple once before in John chapter 2 at the beginning of his ministry and he did it again as a sign of confrontation to the authorities. Then on the Tuesday, there is an extended period of debate between Jesus and the religious leaders and the crowds in the temple compound involving lots of questioning, Jesus telling lots of parables, Jesus uh, denouncing the Pharisees and teachers of the law at the end very fiercely. And then that day ended as far as the account goes with Jesus sitting on the Mount of Olives nearby which overlooks the city of Jerusalem and telling his disciples about the end times about the future about things that were going to happen after he died he told them that the whole nation of Israel was going to come under 
a severe judgment within a generation of him dying. And he told them that the age of the church was going to be filled with lots of very challenging circumstances in the natural world, wars, persecution, dislocation, famines and diseases. So he's warning them that life isn't going to be easy, but the kingdom is going to keep spreading. And then he taught extensively about the second coming, his return in glory and power and majesty. And that took up the second half of Matthew chapter 24 and other parallel passages. And then Matthew 25, we have three parables that illustrate the importance of being watchful and faithful as you wait for the second coming. So a lot of material in series 12 has been taken up with looking at Jesus's teaching about the future. This is all part of him preparing the disciples for the time when he won't be around. Then the focus shifted to the village of Bethany nearby, where we saw a meal taking place in the home of Simon the leper. And we saw a woman called Mary of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, who anointed Jesus with precious perfume. And then we saw that at that occasion, Judas Iscariot decided that he was going to betray Jesus to the authorities. So a very tense situation is developing. Everyone's beginning to become aware that this could really be the end game of Jesus's confrontation with the religious authorities that had been an ongoing simmering conflict for much of his ministry. It was now building up to a climax and the authorities were very intentionally hoping to find a way to arrest Jesus, try him and get him executed by the Romans. They were just afraid of the crowd. That was the problem. They didn't want a scene of Jesus being arrested forcibly in a public location that lots of people saw. They wanted to do it privately so they didn't create a disturbance and didn't create a reaction from the crowd against them. So that's going on in the background. And then comes the Last Supper, which is the context of the washing of the disciples' feet by Jesus. And in the last episode, we looked at Luke's account, starting in Luke 22, verse 7, of the preparation for and the initiation of what's become known as the Last Supper. We noticed that it's a Passover meal. And in the last episode, I described the historical tradition of the Jews to have a family meal on the Thursday of the Passover feast in the evening, having sacrificed a lamb in the temple and bringing the animal back to the home, roasting it, cooking it, serving it with certain other foods as an act of thanksgiving and worship towards God who rescued the Jews from Egypt and called on them in that moment of rescue to kill uh, lambs and goats, to eat them in a certain way, and then to depart their homes and then miraculously escape from Egypt through the Red Sea. We discussed all that in detail in the last episode, so I'm not going to reiterate it in full here, but that's the background. So Jesus is gathering his disciples for the last time, and that's why we call it the Last Supper, it's the last evening meal before Jesus dies the next day. And Jesus consciously wants the last meal to take place during the Passover celebration because his death is a symbol 
of the atonement, the substitutionary sacrifice that was seen in those early days when the blood of the animal that was killed was placed on the doorframe of the houses of the Jews and that protected the houses from God's judgment as he was judging the Egyptians and preparing the Jews for departure. Jesus believed himself in some way to be the fulfilment of the Passover and Paul saw that very clearly in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 7 where he describes Christ as our Passover lamb who's been sacrificed for us. So we're just beginning the story of the Last Supper and in doing so we're going to just quickly remind ourselves of what we read in Luke 22 at the end of the last episode and then we're going to turn to John's fascinating account of something that happened right near the beginning of this meal. So the 12 disciples have gathered with Jesus in an upper room in the city of Jerusalem. Judas Iscariot is there, at least for the time being, and Jesus initiates the Last Supper with these words, Luke 22 verses 14 to 16. When the hour came, Jesus and his apostles reclined at the table And he said to them, I've eagerly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. For I tell you, I will not eat it again until it finds fulfilment in the kingdom of God. These were his opening words, which began the process of eating the meal, drinking the wine that came with it. And there were certain moments when the drinking of wine was formalized into a part of the ritual of the meal, and there was the telling of the story of the ancient Passover during the meal. These were the rituals of the Jews. But at this particular moment, just as the meal is getting started, Jesus does something that's nothing to do with the meal at all directly. He suddenly decides he's going to wash the disciples' feet. And our text for today is in John 13. We're going to be studying the first 20 verses of that chapter. But we'll read first of all verses 1 to 5. It was just before the Passover festival. Jesus knew that his hour had come for him to leave the world and to go to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The evening meal was in progress, and the devil had already prompted Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the Father had put all things under his power, and that he had come from God and was returning to God. So he got up from the meal, took off his outer clothing, and wrapped a towel around his waist. After that, he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Now, this custom of foot washing is important to understand. It was a regular part of daily life in ancient Israel for the very simple reason that people wore sandals and they travelled around on dusty roads, and dry and dusty roads produced dirty feet that needed washing. So as part of hospitality, 
it was appropriate when people came to your home that as they took off their sandals, they could wash their feet. And in a poorer home, the host might just give you a bowl and some water and a towel so that you could wash your own feet. In a richer home, the host might have a servant who would wash your feet for you. Now, there was no servant here. This wasn't a rich family. So Jesus took the place of the servant and he washed his disciples' feet. It says here in the text that he loved them to the end. His commitment to his disciples is amazing. They'd sometimes let him down and they were sometimes complicated to manage. They were sometimes awkward. He was facing the greatest test of his life and yet he was still thinking of them. And he still wanted to encourage them and to serve them. And this passage tells us that Jesus had a full knowledge of what was going on. He knew about the timing. He knew that Judas was shortly going to leave to betray him. But he trusted his father and he made this wonderful gesture of grace to the disciples because their feet were dusty. They'd been walking. For certain, they would have walked from Bethany, where they were staying, into the city, a journey of several kilometres, even just to come to the meal. Verses 6 to 11 continues the story. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realise now what I'm doing. But later, you'll understand. No, said Peter, you'll never wash my feet. Jesus answered, unless I wash you, you have no part with me. Ah, then, Lord, Simon Peter replied, not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And you are clean, though not every one of you, for he knew who was going to betray him. And that is why he said, not everyone was clean. Peter really struggled with this act. He saw Jesus going round the disciples, washing their feet as they were reclining to the table. And when his turn came, it was something he couldn't imagine being right. How can it be right? That the Lord, the Messiah, the King, the rabbi, the teacher, should be the servant. It was the wrong way round. Peter was thinking, well, if we're going to have foot washing, then it's probably one of us who ought to be washing the feet. Maybe it should be me. He couldn't imagine a sense in which Jesus was his servant. But Jesus insisted. And Peter then had a wholehearted change of mind and allowed his feet to be washed. Verses 12 to 17. When he had finished washing their feet, he put on his clothes and returned to his place. Do you understand what I've done for you? He asked them. You call me teacher and Lord and rightly so, 
for that's what I am. Now that I, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also should wash one another's feet. I have set you an example that you should do as I have done for you. Very truly, I tell you, no servant is greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. Now that you know these things, you'll be blessed if you do them. Jesus here is drawing together two threads of his ministry that sometimes people found very hard to hold together. First of all, his power and authority, he is Lord, his teacher. And secondly, that he's in another sense, a servant. He's there acting like a servant. He's modelling something which we have come to call servant leadership for his disciples to follow. And he wants his disciples to form a community that will continue after he's gone. There was a risk that the community could break up once Jesus had gone, because after all, he was the centre of the community. He was the reason for the community. He was the leader of the community. He was the one who called them into community. But that community needed to continue once Jesus had died and risen and ascended and was no longer present with them on earth. And if that was going to be the case, then the servant attitude, one for another, was going to be very important. There mustn't be factions, there mustn't be prides, there mustn't be division, there must be teamwork and mutual love and support across the team of the disciples. They needed to learn to serve one another in a fresh way. And that would be put to the test after Jesus had left them. Verses 18 to 20 finishes this part of the story. I'm not referring to all of you. I know those I have chosen. But this is to fulfill this passage of scripture. He who shared my bread has turned against me. I'm telling you now before it happens so that when it does happen, you will believe that I am who I am. Very truly, I tell you, whoever accepts anyone I send accepts me and whoever accepts me accepts the one who sent me. Whilst Jesus is talking about the unity of the disciples serving one another, he's also telling them and warning them of the significance of the fact that one of them is going to betray him. One of them is going to turn away from them. And this is also going to be a very traumatic event for the group of disciples. They've been 12 together for three years on the road. Very shortly, Jesus is going to be taken away from them. And very shortly, Judas Iscariot is going to be taken away from them because he's going to go to the other side. He's going to go to the establishment. And then, as we'll find out later on, once he's betrayed Jesus, he has a tremendous fit of remorse. He's absolutely heartbroken. He realizes the terrible thing he's done and he commits suicide. So he's gone from the group of disciples. So from the 12 plus Jesus, they end up being 11. No Jesus, no Judas Iscariot. They're gonna to need to love one another and support one another. They've got two traumatic and completely different events to come to terms with. And what Jesus is doing in the Last Supper is he's preparing his disciples through teaching and through action for very changed circumstances, which they're going to face very shortly. 
And here he quotes a passage of scripture which comes from Psalm 41 verse 9. He who shared my bread has turned against me. And he said that that is going to be fulfilled when one of the disciples turns against him. One who has shared his bread, in other words, who's been with him on the journey, shared his meals, shared life together, and even shared the bread of the Last Supper here. Again, this is a reference to Judas Iscariot, who very shortly will leave the Last Supper and head straight towards the Jewish rulers and the Sanhedrin and the high priests and tell them where Jesus is going so that they can send out a party of soldiers to arrest him. Jesus predicts this. And he said that this particular prediction was going to be fulfilled again. Well, Psalm 41 was written by King David. And in Psalm 41, King David predicts that somebody close to him is going to turn against him. It doesn't say in the psalm who that person is. There are a number of possible candidates of people who turned against King David. But the most likely person that this prophesies about is one of his sons by the name of Absalom. Now, David had a complex family, several wives and a number of different children by different wives and one of his wives. He'd married only after committing adultery with her and the first son from that union had died and then the second son was Solomon who ultimately became his successor. It was a very complicated family and David's sinful actions in the middle of his life led to a prophecy that his family life would be filled with difficulty in his later life. And that's exactly what happened. And the supreme example of that was that while he was king of Israel, his son Absalom started a rebellion. He spent his time gathering discontented people and suggesting that he should be king rather than David. And then he actually gathered them together into a little army and he went to Jerusalem and took over the capital city. And David, the king of Israel, famous king of Israel, had for a time with his court to leave the city. And then eventually he overcame Absalom and Absalom was killed and David was restored to the throne. This is the probable background to this particular verse. Someone who's shared his bread, in that case a member of his own family, has turned against him. Now, the fulfilment here is a what we call a typological fulfilment because King David is linked to Jesus in the sense that Jesus is David's successor. He is the son of David, as we've discussed on several occasions. He's a biological successor to David, but he is receiving the royal throne that David was promised would last forever. And so he's going to become the king on the throne of David, as prophesied in 2 Samuel 7, verses 11 to 16. There would be an eternal dynasty. So Jesus is David's son. And just as David had someone close to him who turned against him and rebelled against him and tried to undermine him and overthrow him, 
So Jesus is going to have someone close to him, in this case, one of his 12 disciples, Judas Iscariot, turn against him and try to overthrow him and destroy him. And in that typological sense, this prophecy is fulfilled. It's recapitulated. Something that happened to King David happened in a similar way to David's successor, Jesus. Jesus is warning his disciples. As we conclude, what can we learn from this amazing story? The most obvious point, of course, is that this act of foot washing tells us something profound about leadership and about community. It introduces to us in a dramatic fashion the concept that in the kingdom of God and in the church, leaders are servants as well as being leaders. Now, Jesus had already indicated this very clearly in many different ways. But here's an example. Mark 10 Verse 45, Jesus makes this statement, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The whole of Jesus' life, in a way, is an act of service. Now, leadership in the world that we live in, in society, in politics, in business, in professions, in the marketplace, in agriculture. Leadership can be just the accumulation of power and authority to yourself. It can be very selfish. It can be focused around the individuals who become leaders. It can serve their own needs. But Christian leadership is not like that. The person who aspires to leadership in the kingdom of God is committing him or herself to a life of serving other people and serving Jesus Christ. Just as Jesus is the servant leader, he wants his apostles and his disciples to be servant leaders. And he wants us to learn from this act of foot washing so that we, if we are leaders, also accept the role of being servants for our fellow Christians. And in a healthy church, an attitude of mutual service is one vital sign of life. The community needs to be real. People need to be very open to helping and serving one another when their needs come. That's what truly makes us the body of Christ. Let me conclude with just a thought about verse 10. When Jesus said, those who've had a bath, need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean, and you are clean, though not every one of you. Not every one of you, of course, refers just to Judas Iscariot. But let's think for a moment about this statement to the eleven. You are clean, like you've had a bath, and now all you need to do is wash your feet because the rest of your body is clean. This is a metaphor or a description of a profound reality in the spiritual life. The process of becoming a true believer in Jesus Christ involves a spiritual rebirth that is cleansing of all the evil things and sinful things that we've done in our lives. They are forgiven. From God's point of view, they are 
never going to be held against us. They are forgotten in that sense. We've had a bath, so to speak. Now, Paul describes this amazingly in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 to 11. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who've had sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Very similar analogy there. You were washed, cleansed. That's at the point of conversion. All that moral dirt, all the negative things we've done is washed away. There's a cleanliness in us. We're forgiven. We feel it. Our conscience is clear. We feel we can relate to God. We feel free of the burden of the things that we've done wrong. But along the way, we're going to need some occasional washing, like the washing of the feet in this situation. And so a Christian position is to know that they're forgiven for all their past sins. But when there is some specific thing that you've done wrong, you need to do what 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9 tells us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. So in an interesting way, in John 13 verse 10, Jesus describes the spiritual life. You're fundamentally clean. Everything you did in the past is forgiven. But on a day-to-day -day basis, we need to just check. And if we have sinned in any way, we know we've done wrong, we need to ask for forgiveness and turn away from those things. Well, we're going to continue the story of the Last Supper in our next episode. There's a lot more to come and many more significant things happen at that amazing meal on Thursday night before Jesus died. You have been listening to Martin Charlesworth for Word Online. To find out more, visit wordonline.org.